1: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
2: This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.
1: You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in-store, on social media and beyond. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash B-O-F, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash B-O-F to take your retail business to the next level today. shopify.com slash B-O-F
3: Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion. Welcome to the B-O-F podcast. It's Friday, January 13th. From attacks on scientific evidence around the climate crisis to mistruths spread on social media, misinformation and disinformation is rife. Sadly, there are some truly gifted storytellers who are spreading mistruths, manipulating entire populations, and thereby dividing and polarizing us further and further. How do we know whom and what to believe? As an MSNBC anchor and longtime reporter on the Middle East, Ayman Mohay din has more first-hand experience than most with this issue. He spent more than a decade as a foreign correspondent covering major conflicts, including the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the Iraq War, and nuclear tensions on the Korean peninsula. In 2011, Time magazine named Ayman one of the 100 most influential people in the world. This week on the BRF podcast... Amen helps us understand the biases and blind spots of media in a fractured world from his talk at BOF Voices 2022.
0: Hello everyone, it's a pleasure to be here with you and thank you Emron, so much for bringing us uh, all together. It's a testament to you and the business of fashion and I'm going to warn you already, I'm going to run a little bit longer than planned so I apologize. Never let an American cable news anchor just have a stage. And an audience. It's like a recipe for a disaster. But we've been hearing some very important threads. We all know that media and journalism are important pillars of a healthy and functioning society. That's not a surprise. Some of our greatest societal achievements happen when we are all informed, when we are aware, when we are free to talk about our challenges. And journalism plays a vital role in holding officials accountable, exposing corruption, for example, raising awareness about global issues, the war in Ukraine, what's happening inside Iran. It's important for an informed citizenry when we're talking about hurricanes and natural disasters. So there's no doubt that media is critical in everything that we do. But media can also be weaponized and it can be used as a propaganda by states that restrict information to its citizens to promote hateful messages of incitement spread false and dangerously misleading information. And it can also dehumanize and desensitize us to one another. And today I wanna talk to you about this global pandemic that we're living in. I'm not talking here about COVID. It's one that affects us in so many ways. And it's one that if we don't try and cure, will genuinely disrupt human development. It can genuinely set back our progress as humans. I'm talking about the disinformation and misinformation pandemic that we are currently living through and what you as consumers and viewers can do about it. And let me just be very clear right out the bat. Journalism and the media, they are ecosystems of information. They are created, they are managed, they are run by humans. So it will always have problems. It will always have human error baked into the equation. That should not surprise anyone. But... Before I get into specifics, I want to tell you a little bit about myself. I was born in Egypt uh, to an Egyptian father and a Palestinian mother. When I was five, we immigrated to the U.S. for the first time. After a few years, we returned to the Middle East. And when I was a young boy living in Jordan, my brother and my cousins and I would actually make home videos of newscasts where we would pretend to be fake newscasters and we would run around the streets with a little home camcorder and record ourselves doing all kinds of made up stories. And this was during the early 1990s. And if you may recall, it was during the first Gulf War. And I remember at night, my family would gather around the TV to watch CNN and the war in Iraq in 1991. I remember looking at these grainy images of war in the dark sky with the green light from the tracer fire that was being shot up. And it had a profound impact on me. By the time we returned to the USA second time, I was in high school. And I realized at an early age that, in fact, I did want to be a journalist. I just didn't know how I was going to be a journalist. I didn't know how I was going to get there. But I also realized that because I had lived in the Middle East and because I had lived in the U.S. at an early age, I was aware of the importance of cross-cultural communication. I learned the importance of being able to explain one part of the world to another. I was able to see the other. I was able to hear the other. And all of those things that I just naturally learned were important and had a profound impact on me. Now, I'm not going to bore you with all the details of how I ended up becoming a journalist, but I ended up becoming a journalist. And that's how Clarissa and I uh, have known each other for the better part of 15 years. And before I actually became a cable news host, I spent almost 15 years as a field producer, uh, correspondent. I covered wars. I covered revolutions. You name it. I was in Ukraine in 2014 covering the Euromaidan protests that we were just hearing about. I covered the first Russian invasion of Ukraine. And I spent years covering the Arab Spring, everything from Libya, Tunisia, to Syria. I covered the Iraq war, Afghanistan war, and unfortunately multiple Israeli wars with Gaza, with Lebanon, what have you. And recently, I have been watching and commentating on the Ukraine war with a lot of interest because I've been asking myself, what is it about this war that has mobilized the Western world into, very important here, justifiable action. And it really consumed so much of not just my attention, but all of our attention, rightfully so. And I began to put my finger on it.
3: But this isn't a place with all due respect, um, you know, like Iraq or Afghanistan that has seen conflict raging for decades. You know, this is a relatively civilized, uh, relatively European. I have to choose those words carefully, too.
0: I'm sorry. It's very emotional for me because I see European people with blue eyes and blonde hair being killed. Children being killed every day with Putin's missiles. And his helicopters and his rockets.
1: Now the unthinkable has happened to them. And this is not a developing third world nation.
2: This is Europe.
0: (laughs) So I think the reaction in the audience speaks for itself here. We were told we should care about the Ukrainians because they are like us. They drive cars like us, that they are like our neighbors. They don't look like they are from the Middle East, as one commentator said. They have Netflix and Instagram accounts. They read uncensored newspapers. And when the war got underway, the UN estimated that there were anywhere between four to five million Ukrainian refugees that were moving across Europe in the span of weeks, not years. And I was reminded of the heartbreaking scenes of European countries using their police to prevent North African Syrian, Afghan refugees for making it to safer lands. And there was one incident in particular that really stood out to me. It was the French and the UK governments arguing about who should rescue a drowning dinghy off the coast of France in the UK. 27 people died in that incident. Now, here was how non-white refugees were welcomed when they were coming into Europe. You know, European officials welcomed Ukrainian refugees with open arms. But maybe we are moved by Ukrainians not just because of how they look and how they appeared and their proximity to us. I mean, the idea of Vladimir Putin dropping a thermobaric bomb in Europe, it's gotta be stomach churning, it's gotta be scary, it's gotta be gut-wrenching, right? But it wasn't the first time. In fact, there was one ITN commentator who pointed out it wouldn't be the first time that a bomb like this was dropped. The United States had actually dropped a thermobaric bomb in Afghanistan, but the idea of it being dropped in the heart of Europe was stomach churning, but it was not stomach churning that the very same bomb dropped by the United States in Afghanistan reacted or elicited the kind of reaction that we've seen. And there was another question that I kind of wondered about, which was in this particular case about why Russia was being perceived as this enemy right now. In fact, Russia hadn't just carpet bombed Ukraine as we have been hearing, they had done the same exact thing in Syria a couple of years before. We have seen this level of destruction. And it was also committed by the very same country that we're seeing commit these atrocities in Ukraine. And in some cases, by the very same military officers that were in Syria now carrying out this aggression in Ukraine. And yet when they did it in Aleppo and other parts of Syria, the West did not offer more than condemnation. The Russians weren't sanctioned, The Russian oligarchs got to keep their yachts. Russia's economy wasn't suspended from international financial markets. And in fact, Russia was still allowed to host the World Cup. They were not shunned the way that they are now. And of course, we all know that the Syrian flag was not projected on monuments and buildings in Western capitals around the world. And today, the world is watching the brave young women and girls of Iran going to the streets, pursuing their fight for freedom and liberty. Why has the world not responded with the same moral outrage and action to support the Iranian people as they have the Ukrainian people? It's a question I'm constantly asking myself. And I have a theory. I don't have the answer. I just have a theory. Could it be that for decades the media has conditioned us to look at Iranians through a single lens of terror, violence, religious extremism, and anti-Westernism? My point here is this. How the media chooses to humanize and personalize the stories of those suffering plays a very important role in how we as a people, as governments, as societies, respond to these crises when they do emerge. If we are desensitized to those suffering, our response is likely to be less compassionate and less sympathetic. It's just a fact. And this form of implicit bias is affecting how we see others, and by extension, how we treat them. You, the consumer of the news, the reader, the viewer, the listener, what you do and the choices you make, they matter. Today our society has more access to information than any time in human history, that is a fact, and yet we are increasingly siloed into information streams that trap us into bubbles of our own choosing. Too often the sources we read, the organizations we subscribe to, the people we follow, are not challenging or informing us, they are affirming us. We are going into a dangerous place when we don't seek information but seek affirmation and validation. Look at the accounts and sources of news that you read and follow at home. How many of them challenge you to think outside of your comfort zone? How many of them force you to think harder about your own values and beliefs and why you hold those positions so dearly? We live in some precarious times where we are all both the consumers of news and at the same time, we are actually sources of information to our own networks. And today I want to implore you to give yourself time before you hit retweet or share. Take that extra minute to make sure that you are not becoming what experts have referred to as a slacktivist, someone who just publicly expresses outrage and issues with very low effort. We all do it. Nobody is innocent. We're all slacktivists in some capacity. We often post these graphics. We post these memes because of the goodwill. Not that they really do, but really how they make us feel. And here's the truth. Changing a profile picture does not change the world. It sounds good, it feels good, but it doesn't. It raises awareness, and that's important, but it's not gonna change the world. So just take the time to make sure you do more. And here's the thing. How many of you have been following the latest Twitter chaos with Elon Musk? I'm sure we have some Twitter users in here, right? There's a few hands. Honestly, an unbelievable turn of events. I mean, I'm someone who relied on Twitter through the Arab Spring. I used it to communicate with Syrian activists so we can kind of avoid the Syrian government when we were trying to meet inside the country secretively and I can safely say those Twitter days are long gone. A couple weeks ago an account with a blue verified check mark from Eli Lilly posted that insulin was now free. Pretty significant development. That tweet surprised investors, as you can imagine. Uh, Apparently they didn't get the investor memo. And so what happened was the investors felt that that decision by the pharmaceutical company was gonna slash revenues. And as you can imagine, investors pulled out and sent Eli Lilly's stock price tumbling. And the only problem was that this was a parody account. This was not a real account. It did not belong to the real company. This was permitted under Elon Musk's new rule that for $8, anyone can pay to be verified. And now that anyone can pay to be verified, I want you to think about what the consequences of that mean here just for a moment. In the real world, imagine if someone bought a verification badge and claimed to be an election official, let's say a US election official in the middle of our midterms. And during the heightened tension of the midterms, that official tweeted out that polling stations, let's say in a battleground state like Arizona, were extending their voting hours so that, you know what, if you're rushing to get off work to go home to vote, you have a few more hours. And thousands of people shared this tweet. And none of these people who wanted to go to vote before five o'clock went until later on in the day. Basically, invalidating the vote of thousands of people with one single viral tweet. What if someone pretending to be a government official tweeted out a threat of war or incitement against a minority community? What if that person tweeted out a call for people to go attack a minority community in their country and people not knowing that, hey, this is a verified account? Now, thankfully, all of these, and I want to be very clear, all of these are hypothetical situations that have not happened yet. But these are the potential risks we could now be facing with Elon Musk's Twitter. I've talked to you about the threats of implicit bias, I've talked to you about the responsibility that we have as consumers of news. I've talked to you about the threats of disinformation and how easily it can spread if we are not vigilant. But I do want to close out with something that speaks to the severity of the moment that we find ourselves in when we sift through all of this information that is bombarding us 24-7. And that has to do with what I think is a very important, dangerous moment. It's something I try to work on on my show all the time. It is this idea of avoiding both sides We try to think that both sides of a story makes us Fair and balanced. We just came out of a grueling election in the U.S., and in two months or so, we're probably going to be gearing into the presidential elections in 2024 as candidates announce their runs. And here's the tricky part. For far too long, we have tried to treat both sides of a political or topical debate as equal. We wrongfully assume that if we give both sides equal airtime, we are being free. And this approach led us to treat two parties one which questioned the very nature of our democracy and the fundamental rights of women, minorities, members of the LGBTQ community, merely as issues and policies up for debate. As you saw, former President Donald Trump announced that he is running for president for a third time. And you would think that after everything we had gone through as a country in the past six years, some in the media would have learned their lesson. Clearly, they did not. Look at this headline making no mention of Trump's impeachment or his insurrection or his bigotry, just that he is aiming to become the second president elected to non-consecutive terms. That is not a headline from a major news organization that recognizes the severity of the moment. That is a jeopardy answer. (laughs) And I think that is dangerous. Luckily, though, other organizations like NPR gave the announcement its proper coverage. Now, we may be breathing a sigh of relief in the U.S. that this party was dealt a political defeat, but let's not be under any illusions. More than 185 election denying candidates won their respective races, and today the media must speak out unequivocally against parties and movements that deny fundamental truths and pillars of our society. We simply don't have time to debate whether climate change is real or not. We don't have time to debate whether human beings have inalienable rights or not. These truths must be upheld. As Mark Jacob once, sorry, no, not that Mark Jacob. (laughs) (laughs) Former editor of the Chicago Tribune. He had a really good point, and that is we must reorient the media in this country to be pro-democracy and pro-truth. We really must do a better job at it. The media should be fair to the facts, not to the partisans. In closing, I want to answer one important question for all of us here. What is it that I can do? It's something we all ask ourselves. We live in an age of unrivaled transparency, but also of increased hypocrisy. We have to be aware of that. We live in a world where information is ubiquitous, but knowledge is rare. Where global challenges are outpacing the solutions and the international systems that were designed to solve them are things that we have to be mindful of. We walk into a supermarket, there are 20 different zero-calorie bottles of water to choose from, and we look at the back of the bottle to make sure we know what's the ingredient in every zero-calorie bottle water. That's great. You should do that. That is a good thing. But we need to make sure that what we are putting into our minds is just as good as what we are putting into our bodies. Take the time to understand your own information streams. Find out where and how do you consume your news. Who do you listen to and watch regularly? How do they help you grow and understand the world that is around you? Don't just shun the news because it's stressful or it's depressing or because it's sad. No, you have to invest time in understanding your community better. Invest the time, develop your ability to seek truth and facts rather than waiting for the next meme or profile picture to fall into your lap. And if you do these small, important steps, you will be able to filter out the noise and we will all be better for it. Thank you so much for your time. I greatly appreciate it.
2: I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?
3: From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Visit Bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America NA, Copyright 2024.